The following is a high five moment from highfivecasino.com. Welcome to Burger Yippee. Would you like a hot apple pie today? Yes, yes, yeah, I won. Woohoo! So that's a yes on the apple pie? I just went big time playing high five casino on my phone. Real cash prizes, free daily rewards, over 1,200 games. Yeah. So yes or no on the apple pie? Woo! I won again. I'll take that as a yes. Drive around. Have you had your high five moment today? Only at highfivecasino.com. High five casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited. Play responsibly. Conditions apply. See website for details. High five casino. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. This is a special alert to all Americans who own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles with an auto warranty about to expire or with no warranty coverage at all. With summer quickly approaching, CarShield is offering a low-cost month-to-month vehicle protection plan that is available to the public to save any driver out-of-pocket expenses on future auto repairs. Call now to find out how you can pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs, like AC parts and check engine light mysteries. See why CarShield is voted America's most trusted vehicle protection company and see why our commitment to our customers has landed us an A rating with the Better Business Bureau. We have live reps here to answer all your questions. Drivers who are covered will not have to pay for covered repairs again. This protection plan is at an all-time low. Additionally, drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Visit us for your free quick quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. What do you have to lose? Visit carshield.com audio. Spectrum Internet has enough speed to handle all your needs, so you can work, game, and stream with speeds up to a gig. Plus, Spectrum's advanced Wi-Fi provides enhanced security for all your connected devices. Get Spectrum Internet with fast and reliable speeds, starting at just $29.99 a month with a two-year price guarantee. Visit spectrum.com slash internet for you for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Restrictions apply. On this episode of Newt's World, we're going to explore what I think is one of the most amazing achievements in human history. The Federalist Papers are actually simply a giant pamphlet in favor of a particular outcome. Think of them as the biggest campaign brochure ever written. What had happened was the Articles of Confederation, which had been central to holding the country together against Great Britain, were really not very workable, and they gradually had lost their capacity to get anything done. And so a group of the key founding fathers went to Philadelphia and wrote a constitution. Now, ironically, they wrote it in 55 days, in secret, with no newspaper coverage, and they produced this document, which is today still a remarkable tribute to the rule of law and the principle of freedom. Now, in that process, they had a challenge because it had to be adopted by the people of the United States. And this was a very new, very different kind of concept. People were used to kings, they were used to emperors, they were used to tribal leaders. But the idea that a free people was now going to reorganize its government, and essentially the Constitution was a total replacement of the government which had existed, that was really new and bold. And a lot of people didn't understand it, were very skeptical about it, and wanted to understand what were they asking me to vote for. And in that context, three remarkable people, Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, and John Jay, decided they'd write a series of essays. Now, this was a period when probably about a third of the country could read, but everybody else listened to the third that could read. So ideas actually spread pretty rapidly. And these essays were designed to be printed by newspapers and to show up around the country. And they originally appeared anonymously in New York newspapers in 1787 and 1788 under the pen name Publius. 
Now, they soon spread to the whole country. They became the best single source, which they still are today, for understanding the Constitution. Because these were people who had been intimately involved in writing it and being inside the room, and they knew what they were trying to accomplish. So I thought it'd be fun to spend some time talking about the Federalist Papers, and I think, frankly, they are probably the most brilliant single set of political documents ever written, all of it in terms of supporting the Constitution, which was itself the most powerful governing document, which today still is relevant. You know, the most powerful nation in the world with 330 million people is operating within a constitution originally created by a tiny country of about 3 million on the eastern seaboard of the United States. The convention itself in Philadelphia had approved the constitution on September 17, 1787. And let me say, if you ever get a chance to go to Philadelphia, it is absolutely worth your while to go to Independence Hall which is both where the Declaration of Independence was adopted and where the Constitution was adopted. And just to stand there, realize, first of all, how small it is, and realize this is where everyday human beings, rising above themselves, operating at a level of statesmanship that is almost unimaginable, shaped what became the United States of America. Now, when they adopted it on September 17, 1787, That was just their proposal. In effect, they were saying to the country, this is the best we could do. We hope you'll say yes. On September 19th, the Pennsylvania Packet newspaper actually published a draft of the Constitution. And on September 28th, 1787, the Confederation Congress, the original governing system, voted to send the Constitution to the states for a vote. Now, this whole thing is revolutionary and remarkable. Here are these people not trying to seize power for themselves. Here are these people trying to organize power and then share it with the American people so they get to decide. Now, in that process, there rapidly became a debate. The Federalists were the people who believed we had to have a constitution. We had to have a stronger central government. The Anti-Federalists opposed the constitution. And the Anti-Federalists included some of the most famous members of the American Revolution, including Patrick Henry. The fact is that the Anti-Federalists didn't believe they had rebelled against the British dictatorship to create an American dictatorship. And they were very, very skeptical about centering power in a national government. So both sides are writing various articles and essays, and along comes Hamilton, Jay, and Madison, and they decide to write a series of essays. They divide up the work. To give you a sense of their depth of commitment to the traditional system, Publius was chosen by Hamilton as the pseudonym in honor of the Roman Publius Valerius Publicola. Now, they really saw a connection to the Roman Republic. They thought that there was a chance here to create a stable system. They knew that the Roman Republic had lasted for hundreds of years, and then the empire after that lasted for a thousand years. So it loomed behind them as proof that, in fact, you could develop systems that would last. So they tried to figure out who could join them, but ultimately they came down to the three men. And Hamilton was the driving force, but Madison actually wrote an amazing number of these essays. Hamilton wrote 51, Madison wrote 29. Jay became ill, so he only wrote about five. But between the three of them, they were creating a really remarkable document. Now, The first goal was to have the Federalist Papers convince New York to ratify the Constitution. And Madison himself wrote in July 24, 1818, to James K. Paulding, quote, the immediate object of them was to vindicate and recommend the new Constitution to the state of New York, whose ratification of the instrument was doubtful as well as important. And I think it's important to understand that Had New York turned it down, the Constitution probably would have died. So they went right to one of the key states and a state that was a linchpin. If you think geographically, Virginia and South was one block. New England was another block. Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York were the middle. And carrying them was central to being able to actually have the Constitution go into effect. Now, These guys are not writing for history. They're not writing some theoretical abstract document. They are writing immediately 
in order to try to affect a political decision. As Madison would say in 1820, the Federalist Papers, quote, were written most of them in great haste and without any special allotment of the different parts of the subject to the several writers. Now, they published four essays a week. And again, Madison says, quote, the haste with which many of the papers were penned in order to get through the subject while the Constitution was before the public and to comply with the arrangement by which the printer was to keep his newspaper open for four numbers every week was such that the performance must have borne a very different aspect without the aid of historical and other notes which had been used in the convention and without the familiarity with the whole subject produced by the discussions there. Frequently happened that while the printer was putting into type parts of a number, the following parts were under the pen and to be furnished in time for the press. So these guys are literally writing to deadline. They're not academics sitting in some ivory castle. They're not having some leisurely approach. They are practical politicians writing a document to persuade people in order to make sure that people would vote yes. Madison points out that because of the speed problem, getting it done quickly, he says, quote, in the beginning, it was the practice of the writers uh, of Alexander Hamilton and James Madison, particularly to communicate each to the other, their respective papers, before they were sent to the press. This was rendered so inconvenient by the shortness of the time allowed that it was dispensed with. Another reason was that it was found most agreeable to each not to give a positive sanction to all the doctrines and sentiments of the other, there being a known difference in the general complexions of their political theories. In other words, these two guys didn't always agree. But what they were doing was they were saying, we both agree on getting a yes vote. So you write your best case, I'll write my best case, and we won't fight over the details. Now, at the time, the identity of the writers was kept secret. However, in 1818, an edition of the collection published by Jacob Gideon was the first to identify the authors by name. Now, there were people who insinuated that Hamilton was one of the authors. In fact, in March of 1788, the Philadelphia Freeman's Journal printed a letter from Benjamin Rush to Alexander Hamilton, where Rush called the Federalist Papers, your writing. But in general, they deliberately wanted to keep their personalities out of it. Again, Hamilton's in New York. Madison is in Virginia. Jay's also in New York. But are they concerned that a Virginian lecturing New Yorkers would actually lose votes? So that's why they remained anonymous. Similarly, in all the other states, they weren't sure how people would react to these three names. And so by keeping it anonymous, they got people to actually focus on the essays. The result was that it was very widely circulated almost everywhere because people were hungry for the information and they were hungry to try to understand what was going on. The fact is that the essays themselves became historic almost from the very minute that they were published. Ultimately, copies went all over the country, and people began to realize that this was a very important document, and it was clearly the best case ever made for why we needed the Constitution, how the Constitution would work, and why it had been designed the way it had been designed. Some of the key players, including George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, knew who had written them, and the authors often sent them copies. James Madison, on November 18, 1787, sent George Washington a letter that included the first seven Federalist Papers, telling Washington, quote, I will not conceal from you that I am likely to have such a degree of connection with the publication here as to afford a restraint of delicacy from interesting myself directly in the republication elsewhere. You will recognize one of the pens concerned in the task. There are three in the whole. A fourth may possibly bear a part. That turned out not to be true in the end. Madison, by November, was sending Washington the first 22 Federalist Papers and asking him to get them printed in Richmond. Washington himself was very supportive of it and worked actively to get them published in Richmond to affect Virginia, where you had very strong anti-Federalist sentiment, led in particular by Patrick Henry. So Washington was actively working at it, but Washington was a distributor. He wasn't a writer. The writers were people who didn't have the weight that Washington had. Well, Washington endorsing something made an enormous difference. And frankly, without Washington's help, the Constitution first would not have been written and second would not have been adopted. So I think that at the time, people generally thought this was a remarkable document. For example, 
the Norfolk and Portsmouth Journal, wrote that the essays, quote, was admired for elegance of style, persuasive expression, and also comprehensive knowledge in the intricate paths of political science. James Kent, in a 1787 letter to Nathaniel Lawrence, stated the papers were, quote, the best things I've seen hitherto in print on the federal side. In four issues from March to June 1788, the New York American Magazine, which was edited by Noah Webster of Webster's Dictionary fame, summarized and reviewed the Federalist Papers. In the March issue, the reviewer stated, quote, it would be difficult to find a treatise which in so small a compass contains so much valuable political information or in which the true principles of Republican government are unfolded with such precision, close quote. And I want to reemphasize that. This is actually, if you've never read them, the Federalist Papers are astonishing. They take the Constitution apart, they explain it, they put it in context. As one reviewer wrote, quote, these essays compose one of the most complete dissertations on government that even has appeared in America, perhaps in Europe, close quote. And I would say today, all these years later, it stands the test of time, and it is an amazing achievement that they wrote this. Washington was pretty clear. On April 25th, 1788, he writes John Armstrong, an officer in the Continental Army, quote, upon the whole, I doubt whether the opposition to the Constitution will not ultimately be productive of more good than evil. It has called forth in its defense abilities which would not perhaps have been otherwise exerted, that have thrown new lights upon the science of government. They have given the rights of man a full and fair discussion and have explained them in so clear and forcible a manner as cannot fail to make a lasting impression upon those who read the best publications on the subject and particularly the pieces under the signature of Publius. There will be a greater weight of abilities opposed to the system of the Convention of the State than there has been any other, but notwithstanding the unwearied pains which have been taken and the vigorous efforts which we made in the Convention to prevent its adoption, I have not the smallest doubt, but it will obtain here. Now, when George Washington has no doubt, the odds are he's counted the votes and he knows exactly what he's talking about. Washington himself wrote to Hamilton and said, quote, as the perusal of the political papers under the signature of Publius has afforded me great satisfaction, I shall certainly consider them as claiming a most distinguished place in my library. I have read every performance which has been printed on one side and the other of the great question lately agitated. So far, I've been able to obtain them. And without an unmeaning compliment, I will say that I have seen no other so well calculated in my judgment to produce conviction on an unbiased mind as the production of your triumvirate. When the transient circumstances and fugitive performances which attended this crisis shall have disappeared, that work will merit the notice of prosperity because in it are candidly discussed the principles of freedom and the topics of government which will be always interesting to mankind so long as they shall be connected in civil society. Close quote. Now, Washington wasn't alone. Jefferson, in many ways, very critical of the Constitution, very worried about centralized power, nonetheless, wrote to his good friend James Madison saying, quote, with respect to the Federalist, the three authors have been named to me. I read it with care, pleasure, and improvement, and was satisfied there was nothing in it by one of those hands and not a great deal by a second. It does the highest honor to the third as being, in my opinion, the best commentary on the principles of government which ever was written. In some parts, it is discoverable that the author means only to say what may be best said in defense of opinions in which he did not concur. But in general, it establishes firmly the plan of government. I confess it has rectified me in several points. Now, let me go back and pick up one line here because this is why I encourage everyone to actually read the Federalist Papers. Thomas Jefferson says, being, in my opinion, the best commentary on the principles of government which ever was written. So when people get to talking about the nature of America, the rule of law, the structure of the Constitution, this is the source document. This is the place you should go to about any question involving the Constitution. In 1789, William Shippen Jr., who originally opposed the Constitution, wrote Washington, quote, the Federalists and the reflections which he has excited have made me an enthusiast in favor of our new Constitution. And this was happening all over the country. People were, in fact, saying, you know, this convincing me that this Constitution is the right thing to do, and whatever my 
qualms have been, I now believe that we have to do it. And the result was, in state after state, you began to have a real effort in terms of convincing people to vote yes. This was not automatic. There was a very real possibility that the Constitution could have been defeated if any state had turned it down, particularly any of the big states. If Massachusetts, New York, Pennsylvania, Virginia, if any of those had turned it down, it would have died and we would not have had the United States of America. That is how big a deal it is to look at the whole role that the Federalist Papers had in designing and communicating where we are and where we're going. The following is a high five moment from highfivecasino.com. I won! Private, put down your phone. This is the army. Sarge, High Five Casino is a social casino. It's on your phone. goes wherever you go. I win free spins, cash, prizes, free daily rewards, over 1,200 games. I won again. Platoon, present cell phone. High Five. High Five. Casino. Casino. Win at HighFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited. Play responsibly. Conditions apply. See website for details. High Five Casino. You're probably careful with your personal information. But what about the other places that have it? Like the doctor's office that mixed up your files. They have your social security number. The power company that mistakenly cut your service has your payment info and last three addresses. And the hotel that lost your reservation has your passport info. Your information is in endless places out of your control. Any one of them could accidentally expose you to hackers and identity theft through lax security, breaches, or simple mistakes. But LifeLock monitors millions of data points every second and alerts you to a wide range of threats. If your identity is stolen, a U.S.-based restoration specialist will fix it, guaranteed, or your money back. With plans covering up to $3 million for stolen funds and expenses. Mistakes happen. Don't let not having protection be one of them. Save up to 40% your first year at LifeLock.com news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 40%. Terms apply. Hello, iHeart listener. We have a confession to make. Both iHeart and this commercial you're listening to right now would probably sound a heck of a lot better on the new Roku Pro Series TV. It's got side-firing speakers that fill your room with sound, Dolby Atmos audio that puts you right in the middle of the entertainment, and the ability to pair seamlessly with your home theater sound systems that already have surround sound and booming bass. If all that sounds too good to be true, it'll sound even better on the new Roku Pro Series. Your hearing isn't better. Your TV is. Hello, I'm Dr. Michael Mosley, and I want to let you know about my new immersive BBC Radio 4 podcast series, Deep Calm. It's all about how to tap into and activate a remarkable system that we all have hardwired inside of us, our relaxation response. And it's been developed to be listened to at any time you want to really unwind. I hope you'll listen wherever you get your BBC podcasts. The key then is to actually look at what were they writing and what were they saying? Why was it so successful? And I think that part of it is that there's continuous use of logic in these essays that really walk you through where the country has to go, walk you through how they've balanced everything out. They're really explaining to the whole country. 55 days of continuous debate and dialogue in Philadelphia. But beyond that, all these folks have been involved in writing state constitutions because when they rebelled against Great Britain, and they ceased to be colonies, they had to find mechanisms of government. And so all of them had had great experience. Some states had had several constitutions as the turmoil of not quite getting it right and then having to redo it. And the result is these were very thoughtful people who had done a great deal of historical reading, who had a pretty deep sense of the principles of self-government, and who had reasoned out a specific document. Now, it's fascinating one of the great twists of this whole story is that the Federalists did not want to have a Bill of Rights. 
And their reasoning was that the minute you start defining a specific right, does that mean everything else is not a right? They said, look, the Constitution exists. It needs to be enforced, but it does not need a Bill of Rights. And if anything, a Bill of Rights may actually end up being a Bill of Limitations. On the other hand, what you had from the Anti-Federalists was a deep concern that government at the center would be too strong, something which we have lived through in our own lifetime, the sense that the federal government takes over everything. And so what you had was the Anti-Federalists both concerned in general about a central government, but in concerned in particular about the dangers of dictatorship. Again, it's important to remember this is several hundred years ago. In their time, the memory of Cromwell creating a dictatorship in Great Britain at the end of the English Civil War was very vivid and very real. And they were really frightened. In fact, there was a faction that worried about Washington and whether or not he would become a dictator in the Cromwell tradition. So there was a legitimate deep sense of if we give too much power to government, will government then control us? Madison writes quite eloquently about how if men were angels, we wouldn't need this. But since men aren't angels, how are we going to control the very people to whom we're loaning power? And that's what they're working on. And while the Federalists don't want to have a Bill of Rights, in the end, Jefferson makes it very clear that without a Bill of Rights, he'd have a hard time supporting the Constitution. And Madison basically says, all right, I really don't like it. I really don't want to do it. But if it will get you to support the Constitution, we'll figure out how to write a Bill of Rights. That is a key turning point. They weren't just arguing, you know, do it our way or else. They're saying, okay, in order to get you to do it our way, what do we have to modify? Part of it was a question which would evolve over the following hundred years. The Federalists argued you could have a state government and a federal government that coexisted as equals. The Anti-Federalists feared that the Constitution would create a central government that would ultimately overwhelm the states. And of course, this reached a culminating debate in the Civil War where a group of states said we have the right to secede and the larger system said, no, you don't, and fought a difficult, bitter war, proving that you could not, in fact, secede. And today it's generally accepted that the federal government has power over the states, but it's also generally accepted that that power is limited. It's really important to recognize that the Federalists were also frightened about power at the center. Nobody in that era thought that you could have a government as powerful as the current government is. They all thought it would lead inevitably to tyranny, it just would never occur to them. And they all had rebelled against a British tyranny. Now, at the same time, there was a deep sense that you had to somehow come together. This was partly for economic reasons, that 13 separate independent little states couldn't economically generate big enough markets. It was partially because of their experience of the British, the Dutch, the Spanish, and the French, and the belief that if we remained just 13 isolated states, that the Europeans would come in and play each state off against each other and ultimately would reacquire control of America. So in order for America to be safe and free, they have to have a central government. On the other hand, in order to ensure that you are safe and free, that government has to be limited. The case for having some kind of unified national system really is made in part by John Jay in Federalist Number 2. Jay writes, quote, It is worthy of remark that not only the first but every succeeding Congress, as well as the late convention, have invariably joined with the people in thinking that the prosperity of America depended on the Union. To preserve and perpetuate it was the great object of the people in forming that convention, and it is also the great object of the plan which the convention has advised them to adopt. With what propriety, therefore, or for what good purposes, are attempts at this particular period made by some men to depreciate the importance of the Union? Or why is it suggested that three or four confederacies would be better than one? I am persuaded in my own mind that the people have always thought right on this subject, and that their universal and uniform attachment to the cause of the Union rests on great and weighty reasons, which I shall endeavor to develop and explain in some ensuing papers. They who promote the idea of substituting a number of distinct confederacies in the room of the plan of the convention seem clearly to foresee 
that the rejection of it would put the continuance of the union in the utmost jeopardy. That certainly would be the case. And I sincerely wish that it may be clearly foreseen by every good citizen that whenever the dissolution of the union arrives, America will have a reason to exclaim in the words of the poet, farewell, a long farewell to all my greatness. Madison piles on in defense of the idea of a union in Federalist Number 10 when he writes, quote, Among the numerous advantages promised by a well-constructed union, none deserves to be more accurately developed than its tendency to break and control the violence of faction. The friend of popular governments never finds himself so much alarmed for their character and fate as when he contemplates their propensity to this dangerous vice. Let me point out that when he talks about this dangerous vice, he's talking about the violence of faction. They were very concerned about the rise of political parties that would somehow separate us from each other and cause us to be fighting. But to go on, Madison writes, he will not fail, therefore, to set a due value on any plan which, without violating the principles to which he is attached, provides a proper cure for it. The instability, injustice, and confusion introduced into the public councils have, in truth, been the mortal diseases under which popular governments have everywhere perished, as they continue to be the favorite and fruitful topics from which the adversaries to liberty derive their most specious declamations. The valuable improvements made by the American constitutions on the popular models, both ancient and modern, cannot certainly be too much admired, but it would be an unwarrantable partiality to contend that they have as effectually obviated the danger on this side as was wished and expected. Complaints are everywhere heard from our most considerate and virtuous citizens, equally the friends of public and private faith and of the public and personal liberty, that our governments are far too unstable, that the public good is disregarded in the conflicts of rival parties, and that measures are too often decided not according to the rules of justice and the rights of the minor party, but by the superior force of an interested and overbearing majority. However anxiously we may wish that these complaints had no foundation, the evidence of known facts will not permit us to deny that they are in some degree true. It'll be found indeed on a candid review of our situation that some of the distresses under which we labor have been erroneously charged on the operation of our governments, but it will be found at the same time that other causes will not alone account for many of our heaviest misfortunes and particularly for that prevailing and increasing distrust of public engagements and alarm for private rights, which are echoed from one end of the continent to the other. These must be chiefly, if not wholly, effects of the unsteadiness and injustice with which a factious spirit has tainted our public administrations. What Madison is getting at is that after the victory over Great Britain, each of these states began having all sorts of problems. There was Shays' rebellion of farmers against the inability to pay their bills. There has been a whole series of riots. There have been efforts to write state constitutions that were unmanageable and that would have crushed freedom. And so what you had was the people who had led the revolution really found themselves in their minds fighting to simply preserve the potential for a country to come together to govern itself and to be stable and not to be dangerous for people who are successful. It is hard to overstate how much the founding fathers operated between two extremes. On the one side, they feared dictatorship. On the other side, they feared the mob because they saw the mob as destroying everything. And these were all people of property. And so when they meant destroying everything, they meant literally burning down your house, destroying your business, stealing your property. And so on the one hand, they did not want a government so strong that like the British king, it could be a dictatorship. On the other hand, they had to have a government strong enough to have a stable, guaranteed system of the rule of law. In their mind, that was the absolute essence of freedom. And without it, they would not be able to operate. And the Federalist Papers were the first major effort to try to develop that approach. Casino is a social casino with real prizes and big Vegas hits at highfivecasino.com. 
the hottest games right from Vegas, and all winnings go straight to your bank account. Hundreds of exclusive games, free daily rewards, and come back to get free coins every four hours. Only at HighFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited. Play responsibly. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details at HighTheNumberFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino. Hello, I'm Dr. Michael Mosley, and I want to let you know about my new immersive BBC Radio 4 podcast series, Deep Calm. It's all about how to tap into and activate a remarkable system that we all have hardwired inside of us, our relaxation response. And it's been developed to be listened to at any time you want to really unwind. I hope you'll listen wherever you get your BBC podcast. What are you looking for in a new smart TV? 4K picture quality? High quality and immersive sound? A sleek design? All of those are givens, but only the new Roku Pro series has all of those and the Roku streaming experience. An award-winning OS. Get fast, easy access to all your apps like iHeart, where you can stream all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts all day. And regular, all-inclusive trips to Roku City. The new Roku Pro series. A smart TV built by the streaming pros. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday. I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VTW Group. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It's important to remember that the Federalists were responding to a reality of a decaying society, of rising crime, of riots... Many of the things which we saw in the summer of 2020, things we see virtually every day, for example, in Portland, Oregon, and they described it pretty clearly. They're saying to their fellow Americans, remember, quote, that our governments are too unstable, that the public good is disregarded in the conflicts of rival parties, and that measures are too often decided not according to the rules of justice and the rights of the minor party, but by the superior force of an interested and overbearing majority. However anxiously we may wish that these complaints had no foundation, the evidence of known facts will not permit us to deny that they are in some degree true. It will be found indeed, on a candid review of our situation, that some of the distresses under which we labor have been erroneously charged on the operation of our governments. It will be found at the same time that other causes will not alone account for many of our heaviest misfortunes, and particularly for that prevailing and increasing distrust of public engagements and alarm for private rights, which are echoed from one end of the continent to the other. These must be chiefly, if not wholly, effects of the unsteadiness and injustice with which a factious spirit has tainted our public administrations. In other words, what they're saying is they're looking out as people, most of whom had property, most of them had a vested interest in stability, and they're seeing increasingly crime, increasingly riots, increasingly behavior, which is going to break down the rule of law. And in their minds, all of their prosperity, all of their safety, all of their freedom revolves around this concept of the rule of law. Now, they also believe that majority rule is extraordinarily dangerous. And they point out, Quote, if a faction consists of less than a majority, relief is supplied by the Republican principle, which enables the majority to defeat its sinister views by regular vote. It may clog the administration, it may convulse the society, but it will be unable to execute and mask its violence under the forms of the Constitution. When a majority is included in a faction, the form of popular government, on the other hand, enables it to sacrifice to its ruling passion or interest both the public good and the rights of other citizens. In other words, they're beginning to show you here why they do not want a purely democratic majoritarian system. These are people who believed 
from their own personal experience and from having read deeply in the history of governments, including in Greece and in Rome, that when you have a purely popular majoritarian democracy, sooner or later, there's a wave of passion which runs over the rights of the minority, eliminates the, the rule of law, and imposes whatever the majority wants that week, even though a month earlier the majority may not have liked it, and a month later the majority may not have liked it. So they had a very skeptical view of a purely majoritarian democracy. On the other hand, they say, to secure the public good, I'm quoting them, to secure the public good and private rights against the danger of such a faction, and at the same time, to preserve the spirit and the form of popular government is then the great object to which our inquiries are directed. Let me add that it is the great desideratum by which this form of government can be rescued from the opprobrium under which it has so long labored and be recommended to the esteem and adoption of mankind. In other words, what they're saying here is they think they've come up with a form of government which guarantees freedom, but also guarantees safety from the rule of the mob, which allows you in a minority position to be safe and at the same time to express yourself and to get things done. Now, their condemnation is pretty direct. Quote, from this view of the subject, it may be concluded that a pure democracy, by which I mean a society consisting of a small number of citizens who assemble and administer the government in person, can admit of no cure for the mischiefs of faction. A common passion or interest will in almost every case be felt by a majority of the whole, a communication and concert result from the form of government itself, and there is nothing to check the inducements to sacrifice the weaker party or an obnoxious individual. Hence it is that such democracies have ever been spectacles of turbulence and contention. Let me repeat this because so many people get confused between a republic and a democracy. They write in the Federalist Papers, quote, Hence it is that such democracies have ever been spectacles of turbulence and contention, have ever been found incompatible with personal security or the rights of property, and have in general been as short in their lives as they have been violent in their deaths. Theoretic politicians who have patronized this species of government have erroneously supposed that by reducing mankind to a perfect equality in their political rights, they would at the same time be perfectly equalized and assimilated in their possessions, their opinions, and their passions. In other words, what they're saying is that these theoretical ideas that are developed that sound good on the surface, when dealing with the real passions of human beings and the real passions of the mob, just literally get run over. And you're suddenly, if you're in the minority, if you're the person they don't like, what they refer to as an obnoxious individual, your very life could be threatened. Your property is threatened. You live now in a life of turbulence. Now, they go on to suggest a different approach. Quote, a republic, by which I mean a government in which the scheme of representation takes place, opens a different prospect and promises the cure for which we are seeking. Let us examine the points in which it varies from pure democracy, and we shall comprehend both the nature of the cure and the efficacy which it must derive from the union. We go on to say, quote, The two great points of difference between a democracy and a republic are, first, the delegation of the government in the latter to a small number of citizens elected by the rest. Second, the greater number of citizens and greater sphere of country over which the latter may be extended. Now, the effect of the first difference is, on the one hand, to refine and enlarge the public views by passing them through the medium of a chosen body of citizens whose wisdom may best discern the true interests of their country and whose patriotism and love of justice will be least likely to sacrifice it to temporary or partial considerations. Under such a regulation, it may well happen that the public voice, pronounced by the representatives of the people, will be more consonant to the public good than if pronounced by the people themselves, convened for the purpose. On the other hand, the effect may be inverted. Men of factious tempers, of local prejudice, or of sinister design, may by intrigue, by corruption, or by other means, first obtain the suffrages, and then betray the interests of the people. The question resulting is whether small or extensive republics are more favorable 
to the election of proper guardians of the public wheel, and it is clearly decided in favor of the latter by two obvious considerations. Quote, in the first place, it is to be remarked that however small the republic may be, the representatives must be raised to a certain number in order to guard against the cabals of a few, and that however large it may be, they must be limited to a certain number in order to guard against the confusion of a multitude. This is really elegantly thought through. What they're saying is, you have to have at least a large enough body in the representative body that you're not just going to have a handful of people take over everything. On the other hand, you don't want it to be such a large body that it becomes itself a mob. And so there's some zone of balance. They go on to say, quote, hence, the number of representatives in the two cases not being in proportion to that of the two constituents and being proportionally greater in the small republic, it follows that if the proportion of fit characters be not less in the large than the small republic, the former will present a greater option and consequently a greater probability of a fit choice. In the next place, as each representative will be chosen by a greater number of citizens in the large than the small republic, it'll be more difficult for unworthy candidates to practice with success in the vicious arts by which elections are too often carried. Remember, these are professional politicians. All of these folks had been out there, had won election to the state legislature or the colonial legislature, had won election to Philadelphia, had managed to write a constitution which had to be carried by election. They all understood this process. And notice how they describe it. They talk about vicious arts by which elections are too often carried. And let me tell you, if you've been watching American elections at times and you've watched some of the nasty ads and some of the vicious attacks, you understand what they were worried about. Remember, these people are writing in 1787 and 1788, and they are describing the world you and I are living in because they were that eternal in their understanding of human nature. So they go on and say, the suffrage of the people being more free will be more likely to center in men who possess the most attractive merit and the most diffusive and established characters. It must be confessed that in this, as in most other cases, there is a mean on both sides of which inconveniences we found a lie. By enlarging too much the number of electors, you render the representatives too little acquainted with all their local circumstances and lesser interest. As by reducing it too much, you render him unduly attached to these and too little fit to comprehend and pursue great and national objects. The federal constitution forms a happy combination in this respect. The great and aggregate interests being referred to the national, the local in particular, to the state legislatures. In other words, the founding fathers are making the case, and the whole point of the Federalist Papers is making the case, that this federal system, certain things are national, so other things are state, and yet other things are local. And that by the division of responsibility, so local governments and local systems take care of local effects, states then aggregate their own communities, and then finally, laying over all of them is the federal government. They go on to say, quote, the other point of difference is the greater number of citizens and extent of territory, which may be brought within the compass of Republican than of Democratic government. And it is this circumstance principally which renders factious combinations less to be dreaded in the former than in the latter. The smaller the society, the fewer probably will be the distinct parties and interests composing it. The fewer the distinct parties and interests, the more frequently will a majority be found of the same party. And the smaller the number of individuals composing a majority, and the smaller the compass within which they are placed, the more easily will they concert and execute their plans of oppression. Extend the sphere, and you take in a greater variety of parties and interests. You make it less probable that a majority of the whole will have a common motive to invade the rights of other citizens. Or, if such a common motive exists, It'll be more difficult for all who feel it to discover their own strength and to act in unison with each other. In other words, when you broaden out the whole country and it becomes a continent-wide country, it's much harder for one faction to get total control and try to loot the country. It goes on to say, besides other impediments, it may be remarked that where there is a consciousness of unjust or dishonorable purposes, communication is always checked by distrust in proportion to the number whose concurrence is necessary. In other words, larger groups are not as susceptible to being lied to and cheated as smaller groups. And their conclusion is, quote, Hence, it clearly appears that the same advantage which a republic has over a democracy 
in controlling the effects of faction is enjoyed by a large over a small republic, is enjoyed by the union over the states composing it. Does the advantage consist in the substitution of representatives whose enlightened views and virtuous sentiments render them superior to local prejudices and schemes of injustice? It will not be denied that the representation of the union will be most likely to possess those requisite endowments. Does it consist in the greater security afforded by a greater variety of parties against the event of any one party being able to outnumber and oppress the rest? In an equal degree, does the increased variety of parties comprised in the union increase this security? Does it, in fine, consist in the greater obstacles opposed to the concert and accomplishment of the secret wishes of an unjust and interested majority? Here again, the extent of the union gives it the most palpable advantage. Now remember, they are writing about the extent of the union when it runs from Maine to Georgia. Maine at that time was not yet its own independent state, but it had already been defined as America. And it's essentially east of the Mississippi. Imagine then if they had understood, and they deep down had this sense, that eventually they would occupy most of the continent. And so in an age when you traveled by stagecoach at best, in an age when there was no telegraph, there was no instant communication, they saw the great virtue of the American system being in part that its sheer scale would allow people to live under the rule of law and would minimize the likelihood of dictatorship. But they also knew that the government itself had to work. And one of their key steps, this is one of the biggest jumps from the Articles of Confederation, and I think it actually came from George Washington's own experience. Remember that George Washington spends eight years fighting a war with a very, very weak government under the Articles of Confederation. And Washington understands that there has to be an executive. An executive meant just that, the person who would execute the laws. And they thought long and hard about this. They're sort of balancing between the notion of distributing power to protect us from dictatorship and having enough power to protect us from foreign enemies. And so Hamilton in Federal 69 writes, quote, I proceed now to trace the real character of the proposed executive as they are marked out in the plan of the convention. This will serve to place in a strong light the unfairness of the representations which have been made in regard to it. He's now answering the critics of the Constitution. The first thing which strikes our attention is that the executive authority, with few exceptions, is to be vested in a single magistrate. This will scarcely, however, be considered as a point upon which any comparison can be grounded, for if in this particular there be a resemblance to the King of Great Britain, there is not less a resemblance to the Grand Seigneur, to the Khan of Tartary, to the Man of the Seven Mountains, or to the Governor of New York. That magistrate is to be elected for four years, and is to be re-eligible as often as the people of the United States shall think him worthy of their confidence. Now, notice at this point, there was a tendency to think maybe Washington could get elected and Washington could stay forever. And one of the great things that Washington does is he decides to step down after the second term and creates a precedent which exists until Franklin Delano Roosevelt breaks it in 1940. And after Roosevelt dies in office in April of 1945, the country promptly adopts a constitutional amendment to go back to Washington's model, no more than eight years. But that's not what, in fact, Hamilton had in mind. Hamilton would have been quite happy to have reelected Washington for the rest of his life, and Hamilton had not thought through the potential dangers because Hamilton actually was much closer to wanting a strong, almost monarchical system than any of the other founding fathers. However, they go on to say that there's a total difference between him and the king of Great Britain who is a hereditary monarch, possessing the crown as a patrimony, descendable to his heirs forever. But there's a close analogy between him and a governor of New York, who was elected for three years and is re-eligible without limitation or remission. And by the way, at that time, Governor Clinton became the longest-serving governor in America up until he was replaced by Terry Branstad of Iowa just a few years ago, who became the longest-serving governor in American history. But in each case, they were serving because they kept winning elections. It wasn't inherited. So Hamilton goes on to say, if we consider how much less time would be requisite for establishing a dangerous influence in a single state than for establishing a like influence throughout the United States, we must conclude that a duration of four years for the chief magistrate of the Union 
is a degree of permanency far less to be dreaded in that office than a duration of three years for a correspondent office in a single state. In other words, nobody was afraid of governors. Nobody thought governors were about to become kings. And similarly, the president was not about to become a king. That's the whole point of this. Now, I think what's important to recognize is that the Constitution of the United States was written by a group of people who had, first of all, won an eight-year war against the most powerful empire in the world. Second, it was written by a group of people who themselves had been involved in elective politics, in popular debate, in writing legislation. Many of them had written one or more state constitutions. There were several states that went through two or three constitutions. A number of them had either helped write the Articles of Confederation or had served in the government of the Articles of Confederation, and they knew that it was so weak and so unable to protect America from foreign enemies that something had to be done. And so you have these very sophisticated, very experienced people who have thought very long and hard. In the case of people like Madison, they'd read probably every existing major work on Rome, on Greece, on the whole concept of the rule of law. They'd been deeply shaped by Blackstone, who had just written the first really great history of the rule of law in England. And so they were really extraordinarily sophisticated people who had thought really long and hard and who knew that they were standing at the crossroads of history. They knew that if they could, in fact, put this together, if they could make it work, that they would have changed history and they would have changed history deeply because they are in the process of proving that a free people endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that this free people could govern themselves. And that was a revolutionary moment. And they began the Constitution, as Ronald Reagan reminded us in his great speech, A Time for Choosing in 1964, that it all begins with we the people, not we the government, not we the college professors, not we the lawyers, we the people. And as Lincoln reminded us, that became government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And the most sophisticated explanation of that work of genius is the Federalist Papers. Thank you for listening. You can learn more about the Federalist Papers on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newtsworld is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howe. And our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. The following is a high five moment from highfivecasino.com. I won! Yahoo! Private, put down your phone. This is the army. Sort. High Five Casino is a social casino. It's on your phone, goes wherever you go. I win free spins, cash, prizes, free daily rewards, over 1,200 games. I won again! Platoon, present cell phone. High Five! High Five! Casino! Casino! Win at highfivecasino.com! High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited. Play responsibly. Conditions apply. See website for details. High Five Casino! Hello, I'm Dr. Michael Mosley, and I want to let you know about my new immersive BBC Radio 4 podcast series, Deep Calm. It's all about how to tap into and activate a remarkable system that we all have, hardwired, inside of us, our relaxation response. And it's been developed to be listened to at any time you want to really unwind. I hope you'll listen wherever you get your BBC podcast. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to have supervision, enhanced hearing, extraordinary reflexes, to be, dare we say, superhuman? Well, Roku's new Pro Series TV can't do any of that for you. But with a 4K screen, side-firing speakers, and a blazing fast refresh rate, 
It'll sure feel like it. Elevate your entertainment using all your favorite apps like iHeart and play all your music, radio, and podcasts with the new Roku Pro Series. Your senses aren't better. Your TV is. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.